Welcome to the Radical Reverend Show. Uh, first of all, thank you to all those who donated during the fundraising week. Thank you so much. Always happy to hear from you. And of course, it doesn't stop now. You can still keep donating just, of course, all online as our entire lives are these days. Uh, so just go to the CIUT website. If you're listening on podcast, welcome to love to hear from all of you. And today I'm thrilled to have a couple of exceptional guests. When haven't I? Um, but today we're talking about, first of all, in truly uh, a year since uh, since George Floyd's murder, um, of course, there have been many murders since then. Um, but we're going to talk about that year when the uprising really happened on the streets of our cities and globally. Um, first, Black Lives Matter and everyone um, was out uh, and, and kind of what's happened in that year. Uh, and also uh, some exciting initiatives that I want to highlight today, too. My first guest is Nicholas Marcus Thompson, and Nicholas is that guy. He works for Revenue Canada. <laughs> our friend just remember that tax the rich you've heard it here on the on radical reverend show many times um uh he is also the president of the union of taxation employees the first black canadian to hold that post uh and was declared activist of the year by the public service alliance um he's here because in part i want to talk about uh the black class action lawsuit and what that is why that is and why it's important now so uh nicholas welcome to the radical reverend show thank you very much for having me i'm i'm excited to be here so so first of all um let's just start with you i mean did you always want to be a tax man <laughs> well well my passion has always been advocacy um um my, my role at the um uh agency has um for the majority of my public service career has been as a union representative. So I've always been on that side of it. I just happened to um, land employment at the agency, but my career has been advocating for others. You're now, of course, the head of that union. So talk about that, because I think for a lot of people, there's a popular mistrust of especially federal employees, um, but really all employees of government. And of course, I was an employee of government, so I got this too. What's it been like for you? I mean, you're the first black head of your union. Has there been, you know, kind of pushback in the public? Has there been racism? You know, what's been your experience in the department? Well, what I what I can say, um, um, my experience is, um, uh, been plagued with barriers myself, um, uh, leading an executive where, you know, some do not believe in anti-Black discrimination, that it exists. So I, I face um, significant barriers within the union itself, and trying to bring about that change has been um, a constant uphill battle, um, where you just have to sit back and compose yourself and you're not allowed to be angry. You're not allowed to, um, you know, raise your voice. So you always have to maintain a a calm. You know, you don't want to be um, seen as the angry black man. And you know, so there's. I continue to, um, you know, face significant barriers. And even on my side, advocating um, 
as a union representative on these critical issues. Um, you know, I've faced significant um, backlash from the employer. And, you know, there was one particular incident where the employer attempted to use the um, code of conduct to silence my uh, res very respectful advocacy. And um, I call it the classic case of Karen, um, uh, pulling a Karen, you know, black man doing nothing, being respectful, and you contact the police to bring down the full power uh, and authority of the service on him, expecting a, a, a critical uh, outcome. So it is not um, advocating for this type of change. And, you know, um, uh, the labor movement has a very long way um, to go. Um, I don't know if you know the history of the labor movement when it concerns Blacks, but there was a time when Blacks were not permitted to um, be represented by or join or be a member of unions. Talk so, about that a little bit, because I think there's probably people out there listening to the show that aren't aware of that, um, Sure. especially in the Canadian context. I mean, Canadians, you know, tend to think that, oh, racism, we're not, that's an American thing, right? I, I mean, I think we're, we've woken up. I mean, I think the general population woken up a little bit. Mm. I mean, I mean, <laughs> uh, certainly we're Indigenous or concerned, um, but, you know, we see ourselves as somehow a you know, better than. Um, mm -hmm. Talk to us about about that labor history. Well, what I would say, what I would like to say is that as as an activist and as a you know a staunch supporter of unionism, the labor movement has done exceptionally well advocating on all types of issues across the board. Um, and we're talking about rights for um, uh, sick leave, maternity leave, parental leave. Uh, for the LGBT com community to ensure that those rights are equal. Um, the, the labor movement has done exceptionally well on, on those issues and uh, advancing the rights of workers. But when it comes to um, equity issues, uh, the labor movement has failed because that's in part because it's part of that colonial system, um, that system of white supremacy. Uh, the union is built around that system of of, um, of upholding that uh, white supremacy. And when we look at the workplace, the membership of the workplace are employees of the government, right? It's what forms the union, right? So the union in itself is an extension and a replication of the workplace. So if we have systemic discrimination in the workplace, <laughs> we'll have it in the union because it's the same people moving across. You cannot um, run for executive office in the union without being a member, and that's without being an employee. So they're all connected. But going back to the early days of the labor movement and, and when we're just coming out of slavery um, and the, the transatlantic slave trade and all of that, um, there it was written in the constitutions of unions that Negroes, quote, Negroes were not allowed to be admitted members um, uh, it was, you know, um, so in some ways that practice, although it was abolished and removed from um, uh, a long time ago, it continued in an invisible way. You see what I'm saying? It's very invisible. So um, 
people wonder, well, no black people is running. There's nobody running for the position. And, and, and a part of that reason, the reason for that, um, Sherry, is that, is that um, black workers are already facing so many barriers in the workplace. Why would I sign up for the union to face discrimination there too? Is it that I don't like myself? <laughs> like I, I need some room to breathe. I already have to keep my head down at work. So to go and fight in an all white union or for a seat at the table there to like how much strength can I muster to do that? So the, the history of unions would dictate, would demonstrate, um, you know, there's a rooted, there's rooted um, anti-Black discrimination within the union. So that's why they're struggling to address it. They've always struggled. They've never understood it. Generations down of uh, union leadership. And that's why the Black class action is here because our unions failed us. Our dues that was paid for decades for proper representation and advocacy failed us. Union representatives turned us away. Um, you don't have enough evidence. You don't have, your case doesn't meet. You shouldn't file a grievance. You shouldn't uh, pursue this. You should, there's nothing here. You can't prove this existed, right? Union representat um, representatives have failed in um, advocating uh, across the board for black workers. And that's why we've, we've had to turn to the courts um, so talk uh, about that. Talk about that. Uh, by the way, if you're just tuning in, I'm speaking to Nicholas Marcus Thompson, um, the originator of the Black Class Action Lawsuit, uh, and also um, award winner and president of the Union of Taxation Employees, um, federal, of course. Um, so, so Nicholas, talk about how the Black Action Lawsuit came about and what sure. is it? You know. Sure. So when um, a few uh, in 2018, I had um, um, presented um, the agency with a diversity plan because where I, I represent about a thousand workers in Toronto. And I said, well, you have about 15 to 20 black people out of this 1000 employees and there's none in senior management and they're at the lowest ranks. Um, I would like to present a plan to address this. And the employer came back and said, well, yeah, there seems to be a problem, but if we target hiring and promotion for black folks, because they are bringing in a lot of visible minorities. And I was happy to see that um, from a union perspective, which was great, but they were not bringing in black folks in that um, same manner. And I'm gonna get to that part of the problem which lies with the Employment Equity Act. So when I presented this plan, which was to hire and promote Blacks directly, go out to university and have targeted hiring specifically geared towards Black as a result of that underrepresentation, And the employer said that it would be discriminatory to white folks. Wow. So reverse racism and, and that it would also be discriminatory to other racialized folks because um, a white person um, uh, and other racialized folks can now say, well, how come you don't have hiring targeting white folks only? What, how come I can't apply for this promotion, right? That was the employer's response and that um, the legislation does not allow them to address that. Um, so I continued advocating um, 
uh, within the workplace for those changes. And um, when George Floyd happened, the commissioner of the CRA, um, he issued an email to all staff, um, Cherry, and, he, and what he said was, I know that workers are hurting from what's happening in the United States. And he made no mention of Canada. He made no mention of um, the agency itself. And, um, and employees, black employees contacted me crying, saying how insulting and hurtful this is that we can't breathe at the Canada Revenue Agency. We do not have the ability to, to, to progress. We do not have economic stability um, uh, like white folks and, and other um, racialized folks, you know. And, you know, I, I, I wrote to the, to the um, commissioner and I said, can you first start by acknowledging that the agency has an anti-Black problem? And what they did from there was that they delegated a, a committee to look at discrimination. And the committee had about 50 people and one or two black people. And now instead of anti-black discrimination, which prompted the review, let's talk about all discrimination, all lives matter. Let's talk about discrimination against disability and and when you look at the minutes for those meetings, this should not be a black issue. This should be an issue um, about all discrimination. So then I went to the Minister of National Revenue. I went to the Clerk of the Privy Council. I, I wrote to the Honorable, the Right Honorable Prime Minister, you know, saying, please help us at the Canada Revenue Agency. The agency has hundreds of executives and, and two black executives within its ranks. Please help us. Right, and um, what the um, what when I didn't receive a uh, response from anyone, um, I, I decided to act. So I, the unions were silent on it, or they would issue a statement, but I'm not seeing any concrete action. I'm not seeing any lobbying MPs and campaigns and you know. Uh, as we've done very well on issues for daycare and childcare and all of these advocacy, right? So I wasn't seeing a, a strong will to act. So I, I wrote to the head of the union and I said, hey, we need to challenge this issue with the government. But before we do, before we look at the um, speck in the government's eye, we need to remove the log from, from our eyes. And I'm quoting scripture there. I, I'm impressed, Nicholas. I'm and, impressed. Go on. <laughs> and and I said to I said to them, I said to the the pre national president of the PSAC, can you acknowledge first that you have an anti-black problem within the union? Acknowledge that first, and if you do, set up a task force with black folks because you can't have a task force with white folks. So you have to have us at the table to address issues about us. <laughs> like you can't address indigenous issues without indigenous people at the table. It, it just does not work. So, um, you know, um, the response I got was that we're working to um, uh, awareness and we're taking some awareness classes and, um, you know, it's, I was not very impressed, but they were just starting to learn about, you know, the issues and whatnot. Um, 
And data has been around for a long time showing that um, black workers in terms of um, the groups, it's 0.1% that's making 100,000 or more. And the, you know, the numbers are very troubling. So they have the data um, to point that out. And then I went to the, the taxation union um, and I said, hey, can you, I, I'm following some order here, trying to address it internally first. And um, because I, at the end, I don't want anyone to say, well, you didn't give us an opportunity and you went and you did this and you, um, so when all of that failed, I said, well, I had to do something. I didn't know what, but I knew I had to continue advocating on the issues. And what I did next was I hosted a webinar and I invited all the executives from CRA and the union and, and I brought on a doctor to talk about the trauma from discrimination. I brought on an anti-racism educator and I brought on a lawyer to talk about damages. And, and I brought on some employees and some of the employees like Jennifer Phillips said, I'm retiring this year after 30 years, I received one promotion um, at the Canada Revenue Agency. I've trained a lot of people who went on to be managers, specifically white folks, and how she was denied those opportunities. But she's training those people <laughs> who are going on to, 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 um, to succeed. And, you know, after the webinar, uh, the lawyer, Courtney Betty, he, a former Crown prosecutor, um, he said, he called me and he said, hey, Nicholas, there's negligence here. There's a lot of damages here. And, you know, as a union member, I, I knew we couldn't go to the court unless it met certain threshold. We had to go through the grievance process, which the employer controlled. So the employer is judge, jury, and executioner, which is something that fundamentally undermines the principles of natural justice because there's no way the police can charge me, prosecute me, and determine my innocence or guilt. It, it's just fundamentally um, wrong and, in my view, unconstitutional. Um, so that's where the Black Class Action really started, and we started exploring that. And I knew I couldn't turn to the union to, um, to address this because I knew I would get excuses and let, let's do this and let's do that. And uh, we wouldn't get any concrete measure. So then what I did from there was that I had to privately and secretly organize this. And at every step, there was a barrier. But, you know, for me, um, you know, as a Christian, God really placed it in my heart to fight this battle. And I, I think about, you know, my, my journey has always been to be the voice of the voiceless and to bring justice for those oppressed. And that's the only thing that I could think of. And when the legal team at one point was saying, let's just take the CRA to the court. And when I looked at it, I, the same, I, I felt very uncomfortable with that because the problem was across the entire public service. So, I knew if we got victory there, then we would still be uh, almost a hundred departments still behind. Mm -hmm. So I took it 
um, I said, no, we have to go after the entire public service. We have to bring justice for all of those workers who have been left behind. And we're talking about thousands of workers going back to 1970. And finally, on December 2nd, and I, I think this kind of represents a, a new chapter with the union because when we were about to go public, I wrote to the union and I said, listen, you fail black workers, but you have an opportunity now to turn the corner and make right on this and advocate on this issue, support us in this case in a meaningful way. And the response I got was that um, from the Public Service Alliance of Canada, from the national president, Nicholas, we were supporting black workers. We're going to apply for intervenor status. We're going to provide you with the support that you need. And they have not turned back on that word, the largest federal public sector union. And they have, um, um, you know, very supportive um, in, in getting us um, and helping us to um, move forward. So um, I'm very pleased to share that that that, that union has started um, to turn that corner. A lot of mm-hmm. other federal public sector unions have not. Um, they've issued statements, but they have not provided any support. And um, I think there's a lot of struggle there with them on that. Um, but where is it in the speaking, by the way, here, you're listening to the Radical Reverend Show speaking to Nicholas Marcus Thompson on the a black class action uh, lawsuit. So where is it legally right now, Nicholas? Where is so it? Le- that? So mm-hmm. legally it is before the federal court, before the um, associate chief justice. So um, a very senior judge has been appointed on um, to, to the case conference. And um, the government is, is saying in public that it is open to mediation, but it is resisting mediation in the court as a matter of fact, the legal team, their legal team um, has no um, instructions from their client to um, go to mediation. So um, we will be bringing a motion before the court um, to um, uh, for mediation very shortly. So I'll tell you a little bit about the claim and what it includes. Mm-hmm. So we've filed a $2.5 billion class action against the government for systemic discrimination against black workers going back to 1970s as it pertains to hiring and promotional opportunities. So any black worker that worked for the federal government between 1970 up until certification, whenever that may be in the future, would be eligible to um, uh, join the claim. Automatically, once it's certified, Um, over 30,000 black workers will be eligible um, uh, for compensation um, once the claim is settled. And what the claim is really seeking, besides damages for loss of um, uh, income and pension, so, and that's why the amount is significant. And it just goes to show that discrimination and racism is expensive. Because if I applied for a position and I was denied due, due to systemic discrimination, then my, if, I, if that barrier was not there, then I could have qualified for a higher salary. So we're able to establish that had you not been treated arbitrarily or discriminatory, your salary would have been this. And then um, every time you applied, it would have been at a higher range. And then when you retired, your pension would have been significantly higher 
because your pension is based on your best five years. So if my best five years is based on 50,000, then mm -hmm. I'm going to be living under the poverty line for my pension, which leads to all sorts of mental health issues and generational issues and, and with, with your children and your grandchildren and um, the effects are long lasting and you end up remaining in low housing income, low income housing, and then you're over policed. So the, the structural issues are profound. Yeah. So that's what the, the, the claim is really seeking to address those damages. But beside that, that, once we get past the damages, we need to prevent the damages from continuing. So we're seeking concrete measures to prevent us from coming back to this place. And what those, what those remedies look like, we're seeking to implement a diversity plan. So if Blacks make up 3.5% of the population, then in public service, that must be reflected at all levels, including executive, senior ranks, not just entry-level positions. So at minimum, um, the public service should be um, representative of, um, of Black workers, right? And so we're seeking that plan, but we're not relying. Accountability is another measure. We cannot rely on the same people that thrived and benefited from systemic discrimination to police themselves. So we're calling for an accountability commission um, that encompasses black folks as well to, to, um, um, to police this. So each government area would have to submit their numbers, right? Saying, all right, this is our workforce. This is how much blacks we have. And this is the population of blacks that we're serving in the community. Therefore, um, we are meeting our target or exceeding our target or not meeting. Then this commission will be able to say, okay, CRA, you've done a good job. You're meeting your targets for the next uh, year or you've exceeded that. You've hired how many black folks. You've matched that. You've provided developmental opportunities. You've provided training. You've provided all of that. Um, or you have failed to do that. You have failed to have any promote any black folks. You failed to hire any black folks um, in a proportional uh, and representative way. And now instruct them, not recommend or uh, advise or any in a firm uh, legal way. Instruct the agency by this date. You have to hire X amount of uh, workers that are black and promote X amount in these particular specific classification. So we're seeking real accountability that would actually prevent these damages. And it's so profound because what this will do is open up the door for economic prosperity for Black workers for generations to come. And what I can tell you, as you've known and seen from the civil rights movement, Sherry, when we win rights for Black workers, it's for all underrepresented groups. So the government, the clerk of the Privy Council is now saying, Let's address the issues with black workers, but not just black workers because other groups are being discriminated too. So let's not create a problem for other groups. And the government is really saying, um, let's address the issue for disability, folks in disability, LGBT community, because there's gaps there too. Uh, but when it comes to the black, the, it's way below the 
the um, yes. um, the the criteria. So that's why the blacks need to be treated uniquely because of the special circumstances. Because when you look back at slavery and all of that, and not there was a time when black soldiers could not serve there. So um, that is um, really what the claim encompasses to address those damages, and it will make Canada's public service more diverse and more stronger. It's so exciting. I just have, we just have about a, less than a minute, um, Nicholas, uh, spe speaking again to Nicholas Marcus Thompson about the Black Class Action Lawsuit. Um, what's the next thing we'll hear? What's the timeline here? Um, I know it's difficult with courts, but but what, when, what, is there another date coming up? Is there another hearing? What's happening? Well, well, by August 31st, we will be submitting our uh, certification record, but the, the government is, um, you know, through its action before the courts is showing no intent of settling this and intends to drag black workers through the court to tell their painful stories, um, you know, as they've done with the indigenous um, uh, children. So um, it does not appear that the government is willing to um, uh, settle this. Um, uh, well, and do please. come back because here's the invite to you, uh, Nicholas, is we would love to hear, you know, uh, the sort of ongoing saga of this and what happens next, because too often these kind of drop off mainstream media and they don't get focused on um, people forget about it. So um, let's do everything we can to amplify this quest. And thank you so much for being on the Radical Reverend Show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Welcome back to the Radical Reverend Show, and I'm delighted to have on for the second half of the show, uh, MPP Jill Andrew, who is from Toronto St. Paul's representing, and uh, this is her first time and almost her first full session of Queen's Park. So Jill, I think the last time we talked, you were a relative newbie. Now you are not a relative newbie anymore. You are a seasoned, <laughs> a seasoned political person. So just overall, you got kind of a year left till the next election. Like just general impressions of like, what the hell? Tell us. Oh, Sherry, where do I start? Quite frankly, you, you know, I think one common thread or one common theme that I've seen with the Ford Conservative government is their lack of listening, quite frankly, uh, their inability to consult. And I shouldn't even say their inability, their, their lack of desire, their lack of will to consult with whether it's community, uh, whether it's experts, uh, whether it's their own Ontario science table, you know, it, it just seems to go on and on and on. And now, you know, we are about a week out before the summer session, right? Where we're all in our constituencies, you know, reconnecting, of course, with our community members. However, um, I would argue, and certainly the NDP official opposition argues, that it's too soon for the legislature uh, to be shutting down. Because when the legislature shuts down, we simply do not have that legislative tool uh, to be able to debate uh, to be able to, uh, you know, put forth and table new bills, uh, you know, argue for certain amendments. And, and it's a critical time. I mean, we don't have a full comprehensive school reopening plan. 
you know, we have these sort of, uh, you know, projected schedules and projected dates uh, for second doses. Uh, we do not have a robust plan to support our small businesses. You know, um, I can't tell you how many small businesses here in St. Paul's um, have either shuttered or, or frankly, you know, have not been able to access the, uh, what is it called, the Ontario Small Business Support Program uh, that the Ford government has put forth. Uh, the eligible, the, eligi the, the eligibility criteria, you know, we have argued is, is very, very, very exclusive. Uh, many of our newer small businesses do not qualify. And we're asking for better supports. Our small businesses are asking for better supports. Our parents, the kids, for goodness sakes, mm -hmm. um, are asking questions, you know, with regards to the school reopening plan. You know, we, we've seen recently um, in the 11th hour that all of a sudden Premier Ford now wants to consult uh, with educators, you know, with teachers and education workers. You know, after I, I, I can't even remember <laughs> how long it's been um, since, you know, whether it was the health experts, whether it was the educators, the teachers, the education workers, the unions, everyone has been yelling at the top of their lungs. If you want to make schools safer, uh, we have to cap the school sizes. Mm -hmm. uh, we have to have asymptomatic testing for kids. You know, we have to have proper ventilation, simple stuff. And now all of a sudden, you know, uh, with a matter of hours, hours given to folks to consult, uh, you know, he's sort of putting the blame, if you ask me, and shifting responsibility, sure, you know, as a, he has it's a, throughout. Yeah, I, it's amazing, like I, the dip in the polls and all of a sudden he's consulting, eh? Well, and... <laughs> It's so kind and of again, predictable. And, 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 and it, to me, it just like, you know, it's somebody to put the blame on should something go wrong, right? But oh, I mean, yes. uh, you know, anyway, I didn't want to interrupt you there. Just speaking here to Jill <laughs> Andrew, MPP for Toronto St. Paul's, uh, about her first experience of a full legislature, uh, le legislative session. Of course, it's a year left before the next ele election, but uh, uh, we know that the last year of a session tends to before an election tends to be all about the election. So, so you've you've got a good taste of it, Jill. You've got a good taste of it. Yeah. I you you know what, Sherry? Some days it feels like thirty years ago since I was elected. Uh, some days it feels like three days ago. You know. Uh, but but again, it's it's this it's this constant theme of not doing uh, what's written on the wall. What the experts suggest uh, makes common sense. It's science, common sense. It, it's it's humane. It, it's compassion, and it just doesn't seem as though the government uh, knows how to put all of those together uh, to take care of their constituents, and that's every single Ontarian uh, in our province. I mean, we still don't have a paid sick day plan. We still, I mean, three days. Three measly days when we're supposed to, you know, be uh, isolating for 14. You know, of course, you know, Doug Ford, he gets to isolate paid. All of us, you know, uh, whether we have a flu, whether we're taking care of a, of a sick parent or whatever the case is, we don't lose a penny of pay. Uh, yet we have PSWs, we have our frontline healthcare workers run off the ground, uh, under-resourced, underpaid. Uh, we have loved ones dying dehydrated in beds alone, what does the government do? Uh, rather than, you know, receiving the help right away from the military or receiving the help right away from Red Cross or, or implementing a paid sick day plan, a robust one that includes those, and I should say permanent one, 
that also includes those 14 pandemic paid sick days. No, let's create legislation to protect long-term care operators. You know, let's create legislation so that grieving family members uh, don't have a recourse, you know, cannot, you know, sue, uh, cannot pursue justice, uh, not only against the operator, but the government, you know? So, so it has just been uh, step after step. I remember a while back, you know, when the government had, you know, uh, announced their Bill 184, uh, with regards to so-called, you know, uh, making housing, I can't remember the name of the bill, but it was something with regards to housing. And, and the bill was supposed to be better for tenants. Well, we have 60% plus tenants here in St. Paul's. And I can tell you, uh, no one was really happy with that bill, especially since it made it easier, <laughs> you know, to evict people during a pandemic when we're telling them to stay at home and we've got a housing and homelessness crisis here. So it's, it's again, it's just been this mix of not doing what seems to make perfect sense. You know, shutting down non-essential businesses so that folks, you know, could work from home. You know, uh, ensuring that our, our public transit is well-funded, you know, so that all of the many disproportionate women and, and BIPOC folks who are traveling on the packed bus to their PSW job, to their RN job, to their essential worker retail job, since they've kept us all fed during the pandemic, you know, could get home safely. Just little things. I, I don't think we were asking for anything out of the way. Uh, you know, as you know, the, the provincial government sat on billions of dollars you know, while everyone was screaming for help. And I really think that that, you know, stems from their lack of lived experience, many of them on the cabinet. I'm not going to pretend to know everybody's personal story on the cabinet. I don't. But I think, you know, this is why we need to have more politicians who are real people. Uh, and by real people, I mean who have had, you know, experiences, uh, you know, with inequities, who have had experiences, uh, you know, not having a, a daddy be premier before, you know, or, or not having a million dollar business before getting elected. You know, we need to have people that reflect the diversity um, in our communities, you know, and that I think would allow for a certain sense of humanity and a certain sense of urgency uh, to fix the issues. Uh, that just isn't present. It's just not present in a premier that prefers to give gifts to developers during a pandemic, uh, gifts to Charles McBeady, a homophobe and a transphobe, and, and an Islamophobe. I mean, you know, three for one with him, you know, it's, 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 it's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. And all of this during a pandemic, when all people have asked for is help, like all they've asked for is help. All we've been asking for uh, is help. You know, and, and, and I also want to say very clearly, um, last spring, I think it was, April or so, very soon after everything, you know, broke out, we put forth, you know, um, a Save Main Street plan uh, to help save our businesses, you know, especially our, our Black and Indigenous businesses, our, our businesses that were women-identified led, our, our 2SLGBT, our diverse businesses that we know already have a hard time accessing financial support on a good day because of systemic discrimination. You know, uh, we put forth robust plans for, for, for renters uh, to get rent relief, you know, to have utilities frozen. Uh, we asked for an emergency basic income 
if, if, if I have to hear one more sad story, you know, about an injured worker who's been deemed, you know, uh, by the WSIB or, or someone here in St. Paul's, you know, who, who can't eat, you know, who can't eat three meals a day on the ODSPOW rates, you know, um, my head will explode. You know, our, those rates are abysmal and we've been calling for them to be increased. Uh, these are all the things that I think Doug Ford could have done and he could have done them well before COVID because let's remember things have been, you know, the ship's been still sinking before COVID, but you would have thought that with COVID uh, there would have been, you know, um, the, the motivation to shine, the motivation to, to be a hero, to lead, to try to lead during this time. And, and I think the leadership has gone uh, the wrong way uh, with many of their decisions, or should I say their lack of decisions and lack of responsibility. Yeah. Speaking here on the Radical Reverend Show, if you're just t tuning in, whether you're listening on podcast or CIUT, and again, just a thank you to those who've donated and to remind people you can still donate to the fundraising uh, program here at CIUT, the last alternative radio station left in the GTA. So do give. Um, uh, speaking to Jill Andrew, uh, MPP for uh, Toronto St. Paul's uh, about the legislative session, which is just about to end for the summer. Um, and also, I want to talk to you, Jill, about the fact that it's been just over a year now since uh, the murder of George Floyd and mm -hmm. the uprising, um, mm -hmm. you know, where it, it truly global in extent um, around anti-Black racism um, and here in Canada, too, and here in Toronto. So, you know, just when you think about that year, like what has been achieved, what hasn't been achieved, what, um, you know, talk to me. <laughs> Uh, you know, yes, the anniversary of George Floyd's murder, you know, and, and thank you for calling it what it is. You know, you call a spade a spade, right? Mm -hmm. um, I was very silent on that anniversary. Um, I, I watched, uh, like many others did, you know, and read uh, people's commentary. And, you know, of course, uh, in my role as an MPP, you know, I, I, I had planned to say something public, you know, I had planned to tweet about it or post something. And to be honest with you, Sherry, I was just really um, at a loss for words that day. You know, um, it had been a year. And I was simply left, all, all I could think of was, I wish the world had not known George Floyd's name. I wish he was still here. He should have been still here. I wish he could have simply been another Black man you know, anonymously going along with their day and not having to, you know, live and breathe and die by the consequences of anti-Black racism uh, and white supremacy, quite frankly. But I'll also tell you something that's, uh, you know, also sort of been, you know, in my mind is it's not only the U.S. that has these experiences, you know, where, where Black bodies don't matter. And, and where black death or black murder just sort of seems like you know a pastime for some who who abuse their power and their privilege to serve and protect. And of course, not all you know authorities, not all police officers are bad or anything like that. But all it takes is one, you know, um, to to contaminate the well. But what I really want to say is there are black women who have also been you know uh, who have also been taken through violence. You know, I'm, I'm thinking of Regis, uh, you know, Regis Korchansky Paquette right here in Toronto. You know, uh, Breanne Taylor, if I'm not mistaken. 
So as a feminist, as someone, you know, who studied, you know, women and gender studies way back in the day, I, I do wonder sometimes, you know, um, if the same noise, if the same anger, if the same frustration, you know, is echoed across the world, you know, when, when black women, you know, when indigenous women um, are, are also losing their life or having their lives taken. But, you know, outside of that gender analysis, I would say, you know, we know right here in Ontario, uh, right here in Toronto, the Toronto police budget <laughs> ballooning billion dollars or more, you know, uh, more than our public libraries, <laughs> you know, uh, more than our shelters, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, mm -hmm. you yeah. know. And the 15 percent, I mean, you know, I've had uh, city councillors on the show, of course, and uh, I mean, the, they, they asked for 15 percent, didn't even get that. In fact, the police got more money for body cameras. So there's even more money going into the, the police budget since the uprising, right. um, which is right. endlessly frustrating. So I, I just I can't imagine how it feels at, at your end. Um, I mean, there, what is the provincial angle on this too? And because we think of the police mm -hmm, as being a mm -hmm. city thing, mm -hmm. but there is a kind of provincial angle. I mean, there is a provincial police for one. Uh, there, there absolutely is. I mean, the reality is uh, we need a complete overhaul of police oversight. And, and I must say again, that provincially, uh, the NDP, we put forth, you know, our plan for ending police violence um, within Black and Indigenous and racialized communities. You know, we are calling for an overhaul of the SIU, the Special Investigation Unit. Uh, we're calling for an alternative approach. You know, um, we need to put the money where the money works. And the reality is, you know, people shouldn't be killed because they're calling for mental health supports. Mm -hmm. You know, this, you know, seems to be the situation. You look at DeAndre Campbell here as well. You know, you look at um, Andrew Loku, uh, people who have been killed, you know, calling for help in distress, you know? Uh, so absolutely, you know, let's look at where we have to defund. Let's look at a defunding of some of those police services and a reinvestment mm -hmm. in mental health you know, a reinvestment in affordable housing and real affordable housing, you know, a reinvestment in, in people's communities, in schools, you know, in, in job opportunities, for goodness sakes, you know, in allowing for green space. I mean, the Ford government has done very well abusing uh, their minister zoning orders. They've done very well, you know, again, not listening uh, to environmental co uh, commissioner's recommendations, you know, stripping them of power, all these condos are going up around me like weeds. Uh, they're going up everywhere. Uh, but how much of that is real affordable housing? How much of that, you know, incorporates uh, livable, sustainable green space where, where children, where youth, where families uh, can get to know their neighbor, you know, get to know their community? Uh, how much of that funding, you know, is going towards ending this mess that's on the Eglinton Crosstown, the LRT extension, you know, that has caused, you know, so many businesses in Little Jamaica to shutter. Uh, that has caused sidewalks that are, you know, frankly, not walkable. Uh, anyone that's using an assistive device, I've spoken to parents with little ones, you know, strollers, whatnot, uh, you know, you just can't function. So there are so many pieces that we need to look at, you know, that, yeah, that's not only with that. I haven't heard, well, <laughs> heard talk about the Crosstown for a while now, but, you know, right. it's, uh, I mean, this is a nightmare, of course. I mean, 
this is partly Betrelinks, right? So yes, every, everything Betrelinks touches, you know, doesn't turn to gold. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> no, no. Well, well, from what I from what I know, I remember reading a several days ago uh, that, of course, you know, Crosslinks, you know, uh, won their case, you know, and their case was a fight uh, to prove that COVID nineteen had impacted their deadlines right, for the Eglinton LRT construction. And you know what, I'm not a construction worker, I'm, I'm not going to attest yay or nay to that. Uh, but they've won their case, and that means that now they're renegotiating deadlines <laughs> for the end of the construction. So my thing is, you know, if that works for, uh, for Crosslinks, let's, let's get help for the tenants and the small businesses that have also been impacted uh, by COVID-19 and of course the Eglinton Crosstown and of course the flooding uh, that's happened. You know, that's, I put forth legislation uh, calling for supports for financial supports for small businesses along Eglinton, um, especially uh, Little Jamaica. I put forth legislation calling for a ban on above guideline increases, which I gotta say, like the government, his rich idea of freezing rent, <laughs> but allowing the loophole of AGIs you know, which has frankly allowed, you know, a billion dollar corporation, you know, property manager to still, you know, get that rent back from people that uh, have lost their jobs because of Explain COVID. AGIs, because that's... Uh, yes, yes, of course. Don't so uh, above guideline increases, mm -hmm. it's sort of this, uh, it's what a landlord can apply for right. um, in order to have a capital project repair done so a new roof for instance you know uh you know extensive security maintenance you know to the building elevators whatever the case might be you know but the point of the matter is tenants don't really have a say in in what qualifies as an agi or not they don't have a say as to whether or not they're even necessary and i've spoken to a lot of folks here in st paul's who are like you know i don't even see uh, i don't even see the, the you know the the I don't even see where the AGI has gone. Uh, my own unit is crumbling. Uh, many times my landlord will not respond to my emails, my phone calls or my letters. My rent's still going up and, and where's it all going? So of course my motion was denied uh, because again, you know what the research shows, I think it was Renovation TO I remember uh, you know, seeing was that AGIs had gone up what 250% in six years but yet it wasn't the mom and pop landlords using these. It was the billion dollar, you know, property management landlords who could pay for the roof 20 times over who are putting the roof on the tab of the senior, you know, the, the, the little elders that are trying to struggle on, on fixed incomes or the people who are living on ODSPOW, you know, who cannot get fresh fruits and vegetables. You know, it's I could go on and on and on for mm -hmm. hours. Um, the optimism that I try to keep me um, grounded, because I got to tell you, I do a whole lot of crying and screaming and yelling and just sort of sitting like this sometimes, you know, um, is he's got one more year. And I'm telling you, Ontario is not going to forget, Sherry. Um, I've spoken to conservatives who have said to me, he's not my premier. You know, and and it's it's really that is the inspiration is to know that Ontarians are fed up. Uh, they will not forget that Doug Ford, you know, refused to spend the money to save their lives uh, to make life better during a pandemic during the worst time. 
uh, in certainly our generation in terms of, you know, a, a health pandemic, uh, he just wouldn't pony up the cash. And it's a low down dirty shame to think mm -hmm. that when people needed the premier the most, you know, uh, he was absent from the wheel, you know, and, and buck a beer. Like I, I go back to some of these first things that were his, you know, his, his, his priorities, buck a beer, you know, stripping, you know, uh, sex, uh, physical health education from our, from our curriculum. Thank God, you know, the kids and everyone else rose up and that stopped, you know, not uh, properly funding housing so that people could live safe uh, during a pandemic, you know, creating laws that allow, you know, politicians to, to get more donations, to, to allow leaders of parties to get more donations. Like that's not a COVID-19 response, you know? Um, you know, <laughs> what cutting long-term care. Yeah, oh, well, long-term care is, as I call it, long-term crime. Um, <sighs> one, of the, um, one of the things that, that struck me, you know, having not been there this session and looking from the outside in is just some of the conservatives, especially the women that we used to work with on the other side of the aisle, right, in opposition, who just, it's shocking to watch in real time people selling their souls. I, I, that I can't mm -hmm. describe it any other way. Mm -hmm. Like, mm -hmm. like women who signed on to some of my queer bills who are sitting there clapping for him when I know they weren't fans. Um, but I mean, just what for front row seat and going along with some of the egregious stuff that's happening over there. I mean, that's shameful. Um, I, I find it sad, uh, actually, as as much as shameful, just sad to watch to watch that in it. real time, right? You know, I I, I see it. You know, I, I got to tell you, I mean, again, I, you know, I'm not going out for lunch or drinks even before the pandemic with any of the, you know, conservative members. Mm -hmm. But I see on the face sometimes, I see on some of their faces, um, especially uh, women identified MPPs across the bench in the cabinet, mm -hmm. where they're clapping, they're doing the seal clap, but they're looking down, Sherry. Uh, mm -hmm. They're not looking, they're not looking proud, you know, they're, they're not looking as filled with pride as we did, you know, when we stood up there fighting for paid sick days, mm -hmm. you know, uh, we, they didn't look, they didn't have that sense of pride when we were demanding, you know, a ban on evictions for small businesses and tenants, you know, they didn't have the look of pride, you know, um, I had, you know, when I stood up there fighting, you mm -hmm. know, for eating disorder survivors, you know, like it doesn't seem like there's ever that sense of pride. And I, and I do feel that it's because deep down, uh, they know that they're creating legislation that is legislating poverty. Uh, they're creating legislation that is legislating racism and anti-black racism, uh, you know, and, and all the other isms and discriminations, of course, uh, you know, they're legislating, you know, homelessness, quite frankly, uh, because again, if you're not putting the right policies in place, if you're not listening to the people who are impacted the most by your policies, and those are the people that tend to have the least power, then you're not doing your job as a premier um, or as a cabinet uh, minister or as a member of the backbench or, or whatever it is that they're called, you know? Sure. Um, so it's, it's, it's tough to watch. Um, it, it gets, um, it can weigh on you at times, but I have to believe that better days are ahead. Um, and I'm hoping that that means an NDP government uh, next year. Uh, but one thing I know for sure is, you know, Doug Ford is gonna have a lot of answering to do if he thinks he could ever uh, gain the respect 
of Ontarians again next year. I just don't think it's possible because we, we will never forget. We won't forget. Speaking, of course, to uh, Jill Andrew, who is the MPP for Toronto St. Paul's, after uh, three years of her first three years as an MPP at Queen's Park, mm -hmm. and, and also a year since uh, the murder of George Floyd as well. So a pretty, a pretty I can't imagine a more tumultuous session to be a new MPP. And we just have a couple of minutes, Jill, if you just like sort of fast thoughts of like, you know, what what did you experience it in your first experience as an elected official uh, that you didn't expect? And, um, uh, mm -hmm. at, you know, kind of best and uh, let's say best and worst, best and worst oh, last three years. Oh, dear. Best. Actually, you've talked about the worst pretty well. <laughs> oh, <laughs> but what, what's the best? What's the best? Part oh, boy. That? Oh boy, <laughs> I, I I feel terrible that a best doesn't come to mind right away. Mm -hmm. um, I, I will say that it has certainly been an honor uh, working in the legislature. It's been an honor uh, getting to know my official opposition uh, members, colleagues, uh, some of whom are, are personal friends, quite frankly. Uh, that has certainly been a highlight. Um, it has certainly been a highlight bringing folks in to Queen's Park you know, uh, when we were able to, uh, to advocate, to, to watch us in action, to watch their hard work in action, because really, uh, as a politician, you do, you do not do it alone. Um, you know, whether it's the people you work with, the people who work for you, uh, the community that, that tells you what's going on in a way that you may not be able to see all the time because you're also busily at Queen's Park. Mm -hmm. uh, we come into the house and we tell stories and we advocate as hard as we can uh, for, for legislation that's going to properly and positively impact lives, you know? But um, all that aside, you know, I, I am very surprised that carding and racial profiling are still allowed uh, in the province of Ontario, regardless of what the premier said, it's still here. I, I am very surprised that we're still fighting for pay equity. <laughs> you know, that seems like a simple, easy one to fix. And, and, you know, I, I'm also really surprised at the, well, I, I'm really surprised at the, at the, at the climate of long-term care. You know, the reality is I didn't know as much as I know now. And, and to realize that long-term care had been crumbling uh, well before this government, including the liberal government with hospitals closed, this, that, and the other, uh, here is where we are now, you know, but I do believe there's hope. Uh, we have put forth wonderful platform items around our Green New Democratic deal, around environment, housing, seniors care that we have to have better, uh, you know, um, small business support, you know, around gender and, and the need for an equitable rollout of a vaccine plan, because as you know, there was no equitable rollout. So there's so many things, yeah, so many yeah. things. Well, an absolute pleasure as always, Jill, to have you on the show. Thank, thank you, you so much. And and thank you for what you've done. Um, and here's hope you can, hoping you can keep doing it and more of it. So, yeah. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> till next time. And to listeners out there, till next time, love to hear your comments. As always, always respond on the Radical Reference Show. Take care. Oh,